you have your Bible available to you this morning, Gospel of John, third chapter. Gospel of John, third chapter, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who ascended, descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, grant to us now in these moments the work of your Spirit to help us rightly see and hear and now respond to this, your very word. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're looking at probably one of the most often preached texts in all the Bible. Even people who have no interest in the church or the kingdom or any of these things have heard sermons on John chapter 3. We've been looking in the last several weeks at our proposed confession of faith, and we've considered Scripture, God, man, salvation, justification, adoption, the free offer of salvation, and today... We consider the matter of the new birth, or the theological term, regeneration. Now I would say that of all the doctrines in the confession, this one has as much exposure in our nation, especially in the last 50 years, as any other. For a little over 50 years ago, a presidential candidate, one James Earl Carter, granted an interview to Playboy magazine in which he described himself as a born-again Christian. And suddenly that terminology leaked out into the culture 
if you were. And if, if you thought about it, it was a kind of unique terminology. Born again Christian. Now at the time, it might have been helpful in that it distinguished between a generic, soul-destroying moral religion that somehow had gained the name Christian and actual, genuinely transformative Christianity. That said, due to a lot of very poor understandings and definitions, a lot of confusion, the terminology also became confusing. You see, the claim to be born again has eroded into a mere claim to an experience totally self-defined, self-defended, which comes out this way. You could apparently claim to be born again Christian, but your life, your language, your behavior, your thinking, your appetites, not affected in any way, shape, or form. I have in the last several years run into many people who oh, I'm absolutely a born-again Christian. Really? So where are you a part of the Lord's kingdom? What part of the church are you in? Oh, I don't go to church. Okay. You know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, but you can't be a Christian without being in the church. Ponder that one a little while. That'd be good for you. Further, it's a redundancy. There's no such thing as a not born-again Christian. That's an impossibility. Born-again and Christian are the same things. It's basically calling somebody a Christian Christian. I don't know, maybe we ought to come up with something new. Christian squared. Now here's what our confession says. Regeneration. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. Regeneration consists of the enlightening of the mind and is accomplished in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth. The new birth also secures our immediate voluntary obedience to the gospel. Proper evidence of regeneration appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness life. I love that confessional statement. That is so encouraging. But I say again, there's been a lot of error taught, I believe, about the new birth. And a misunderstanding here is truly a terrible misunderstanding. James Boyce in his Foundations of the Christian Faith said it this way, spiritual rebirth is initiated and nurtured by our heavenly parent and is outside our doing. You see, unbelievers only think they understand spiritual realities. They really don't. It is only the new birth that changes our spiritual nature. It is only the new birth. It is only regeneration that 
changes us. Now, let's see what Jesus actually says here. I'm uh, intrigued every time I read these interviews with Jesus. And the Gospel of John has several of these. You have the woman at the well coming up in the fourth chapter. You have this one, these interviews between Jesus and somebody else. We have this Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, considered a religious leader in his day. And John makes the note, he comes to Jesus by night. Now, John doesn't do that just for fun. He wants you to understand something. Nicodemus knew something was going on here, and he was very, very curious, and he wanted to have a conversation, but he didn't want anybody to know he was there. Now, keep in mind, this is before the era of cell phones that tracked you, cameras that watched you, or streetlights that exposed you. At night, if you traveled in this time, it was not likely that you would necessarily be recognized unless the person knew you quite well. And so Nicodemus comes by night. Let's just have a little conversation with this new rabbi, Jesus. Conversation between men of learning, spiritual men. And Jesus, <laughs> now, now keep in mind, Here's a fellow who's seen as ruler of the Jews. He calls Jesus rabbi. He bestows upon him the title of a, of a serious teacher. We know you're a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is truly with him. Now, see, that's supposed to provoke from the country bumpkin Jesus. Wow. Nicodemus, you calling me a rabbi? You saying I'm from God? I am so humbled. <laughs> but you see, he doesn't get who Jesus is. So Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. And what's the first thing he tells him? Number one, you can't see the kingdom without a profound change, a new birth. Verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, now that, again, that truly, truly, those of us who grew up in the era of King James, verily, verily, it's an actual translation of the text, and the word that's used there in Greek is amen, amen, which Baptists switch the accents and the tone to amen and amen, which is from Hebrew, amen. It was a way of saying, pay attention, this is important. Are you listening to me? Unless one is born again, literally born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. Now, what a strange way to engage Nicodemus unless Jesus recognizes there's something profoundly wrong with Nicodemus. Unless you are born from above, you don't get it. Nicodemus, for all your learning, you don't get it. Paul before Agrippa will say at one point, Festus has this outburst. 
You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has made you insane. And Paul's response, you remember, I, I actually wish you were as insane as I am. That's a paraphrase. I wish everybody here were like me except for these chains. Because there's been an interruption. You will not see the kingdom unless you're born again. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2nd chapter, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, who's a natural man? To whom is he referring? He's referring to anybody who is not a believer. They don't see the kingdom. He'll say in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom. This is what R.C. Sproul references as a necessary condition. If this is not met, you don't even see what's going on. Second part. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus responds, Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he's old? This is ludicrous. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. My friends, you can't enter the kingdom without the new birth. And you understand Jesus is building on two things here. To enter the kingdom, you have to see the kingdom. To see the kingdom requires a new birth. Unless you're born again, you'll never see. Unless you're born again, you never enter. You don't grasp what is going on. Jesus' answer is the logical outcome of the first statement. If the new birth is necessary before you can see, then it follows the new birth is necessary before you can enter. And then Jesus uses a phrase here, uses words that sometimes people have been confused about. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And oh my goodness, so much has been written on this. What does he mean by born of water and born of the Spirit? Now, some have tried to come up with the idea that saying unless you're baptized and the Spirit of God comes into your life, you don't enter the kingdom. But baptism is nowhere in sight here. It's nowhere referenced here. Okay, here's the other one. Unless you're physically born, referencing water, if you will, in birth, unless you're physically born and spiritually born, you can't enter the kingdom. And that one is brilliantly ludicrous. What is that meaning? How does that have any bearing on what's being said here? Jesus is not for a moment arguing that somebody who's not been physically born, who is not a human being, has not entered the world, is somehow going to enter the kingdom. This is not sensible. And part of what gives you a clue is later, whenever Jesus kind of mocks and rebukes Nicodemus by saying, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this? Now why does he say that? Because there's a passage in the Old Testament that sheds light on this. It's Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. 
This is part of the new covenant promises. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. This is the Lord's promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I'll cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." It is the promise of the new covenant. It is the picture of washing. It is the picture of sin being forgiven, of pollution being taken away, and a new heart and new spirit granted. This is the promise of the new covenant. So here again what he's saying. You cannot see the kingdom without the new birth. You certainly cannot enter the kingdom without the new birth. The Spirit of God has to do a work. Why is this true? Third thing, you can't be what you're not. Now that's a brilliant one, isn't it? You cannot be what you are not. Why? Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Here's what he's teaching us. Dogs have puppies. Cats have kittens. Sinners have sinners. Parents, you've figured that out, haven't you? Those little barbarians that you brought home from the hospital or the birthing room, right? I know some of you are offended that I said barbarians, but if you have ever dealt with an angry toddler, oh my word. I've said it before, I say it again. I'm thankful they're not six foot eight and weigh 250. This would be a bad outcome for most of us. What you are by nature is never what you must be to enter the kingdom. Something has to change. You see, folks, the Scripture says to us over and over again, you have a sight problem, you can't see. You have a hearing problem, you can't hear. You have a heart problem, heart of stone. You have a mental problem, your mind is darkened. You have a mortality problem, you're dead. You are completely disabled to these things. This necessary condition is not within your ability. You cannot change yourself. Listen to R.C. Sproul again. The unregenerate person is earthbound. His ear is deaf to any word from heaven. His eye is blinded to the glory from on high. He lives as a walking cadaver in a spiritual graveyard. Folks, you do get it, right, Christian? You walk among the living dead. It doesn't need to be a scary movie. It's a present reality. This is why I'm always astonished at Christians getting angry at lost people for acting lost. I'm not saying we shouldn't be appalled. I'm not saying there are times we shouldn't be alarmed. But why do we get personally angry when a lost person acts like what they are? 
Something has to happen. All right. You got the principle so far? You can't see the kingdom without the new birth. You can't enter the kingdom without the new birth. You can't be what you're not. You can't transition on your own. Fourth thing. Verse 8 tells us something else. You're not in control. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now here's a blunt statement which makes us uncomfortable. Jesus makes a comparison between the wind and the Spirit. Where does the wind blow? Wherever it wants to. Where does the Spirit work? Wherever He pleases. You don't control the wind. You don't control the Spirit. You don't make the new birth happen. But you can't miss when the new birth happens. Is this taught elsewhere? How about John 1, verse 12? But to all who receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, now hear this, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What about James? James 1.18 Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. My friend, the new birth is not in your control. I mentioned earlier, I think a terrible mistake was made early on when this whole thing of the new birth became part of the cultural parlance because what began to be taught was, well, it's up to you to be born again. And it got the order messed up. In fact, there was a very popular book in the 70s, How to Be Born Again. Now, let me explain something to you. That title makes as much sense as How to Be Born. You had nothing to do with your birth. You were acted upon. The same is true of the new birth. This is not in your control. Well, wait a minute. He just said, you must be born again. If I must, then I must have the power. No, you don't. God must act. God must do something here. Think of it this way. What happens that the crowd who called for Jesus' death, that 40 days later, 50 days later, day of Pentecost, here's Simon Peter and the apostles preach, and what is their response? Men, brothers, what must we do to be saved? What happened? The Spirit of God. That's on a mass scale. 
But you see the same thing in the same book of Acts, the 16th chapter, with Lydia, the businesswoman, along with other women that gathered by the river outside the city of Philippi to have a Bible study because they didn't have enough men. You had to have 10 Jewish men to open a synagogue, and they didn't have 10 Jewish men. So this lady and some others met down by the river. And Paul and his companions go down to the river, and they invite him because he's a traveling rabbi to teach, and he teaches them Jesus. And the text says, the Lord opened her heart. Now, friend, if you're a Christian, do you really, are you following this? Do you get it? Do you follow that this is what happened to you? I don't know about you, but I grew up in a very religious household, very Christian household, and I heard the word a lot. I heard a lot of stuff. I mean, folks, we in church every week. See, you know, in our house, it was never a question, what are we doing on Sunday morning? As though there was an option. We're going to church. Sunday school, church, and most times Sunday night. But I didn't get it. But one day I did. Why did I get it? I got smarter. I matured. I became more spiritual. No. Because one day, by the kindness of the Lord, I was moved from death to life. And from blind to seeing and from deaf to hearing. We must have divine intervention. That's the final thing. You aren't in control. See, this is why I reprobate entirely. I find so objectionable that for years the whole crusade mentality, and please understand, folks, I'm not... I'm not denying that people got saved under those crusades, but I've been around those things, and they would actually teach us this stuff. Depending on how many counselors you have and depending on how kind of money you spend, we say that you will have this many. They actually had formula. This much money spent, this much effort put in, this many counselors ready to meet with people, and here's how many people will be saved. The wind blows where it wills. So is everyone born of the Spirit. My friend, God must act. What I do this day, what I do week in, week out, what any of us stand before preaching the Word of God, we actually do something here that is eminently foolhardy. This is madness. Except God attends by His Spirit the preaching of His Word. I've said before, I say again, whenever I read the whole story of Lazarus in this Gospel of John, that 11th chapter, and I read that, Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. Yeah, I love John's understatement. 
and he was dead, came forth. That is my salvation. God, understand Jesus literally brought Lazarus out of the tomb, but spiritually that's what he does for every last one of us. One day Jesus said, Doug Shivers, come forth. And he that was spiritually dead came forth. This requires divine intervention. You don't understand the work without the Spirit, verses 9 through 12. You need a heavenly Savior. You can't make your way to heaven. The Savior must come down to you, and you look for your salvation to Him and Him alone. We cannot be Christians without regeneration. For the gospel is not preached only in order to be heard by us, but that we may be radically changed by the seeds of immortal life. There's the necessity of the word. Illustrate it this way. Think about Jesus in the parable of the sower. Sower goes forth to sow. Casts that seed, right? And some it's snatched away, and some it seems to start, and it doesn't get anywhere. And in some cases, it bears fruit. But when it bears fruit, and it doesn't bear all the same fruit. Not everybody produces the same way. Not every Christian life is the same. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Consider the story of a fellow from the early English reformers. Named, uh, he was nicknamed Little Bilney. He was born in the year of our Lord, 1495. He had studied law and was outwardly rigorous in all his efforts at religion, but there was no life in him. And he happened to get a Latin translation of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and here's what he writes, here's what happened. I chanced upon this sentence in St. Paul, O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. 1 Timothy 1, it's a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief and principal. That one sentence through God's instruction and inward looking, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded by the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. And after this, the Scripture began to be more pleasant to me than honey from the honeycomb. I'm excited to meet Brother Bilney when we get to glory. I have a feeling it's an entertaining story to hear firsthand. My friend, we have to have the Word come to us in power. It must be the work of God who lets the light shine. It needs Spirit-empowered preaching. I love Robert Layton. The preacher of the Word, be he ever so powerful, can cast this seed only into the ear. His hand reaches no farther, and the hearer by his attention may convey it into his head. But it is the Supreme Father and Teacher above who carries it into the heart the only soil where it proves lively and fruitful. God must do this. 
Parents, do you understand? As you teach your children, they're little people. You start teaching them the gospel. You start teaching them the word of God. And you wonder, do they get it? No, they don't get it. And that's okay. Oh, they may understand elements. They may have some grasp. But you see, what you're doing is you're planting seed. Right? You're planting seed. You're watering seed. And you try to, by teaching and by example and by you're living your life, what you're praying for is not that somehow you browbeat them, force them, twist them into somehow coming into this. What you're doing is praying that God take the word you speak to them, the word you teach them, the life you live before them, the word of God through the church, through the lives of other believers, you're praying that at some point God the Spirit comes into that life and makes this bear fruit. The order of events in salvation is not faith, regeneration, justification. No. Regeneration, faith, justification. It is not until you are awakened that you repent and believe. My friend, this ought to make your evangelism less daunting to you. What if I mess it up? They're dead. You're not going to make it worse. Right? Broadcast the seed. It may be no more than I'm praying for you. Or how can I pray for you? It may be as simple as a word. Just they're talking about something and you just quote a text of scripture, said, give that a little thought. see, my friend, without the new birth regeneration, you don't ever become a Christian. You have to have this change. You know, I hear unbelievers talk about wanting to go to heaven. Do you understand that heaven would be miserable for an unregenerate, a person who's not a Christian? It'd absolutely be miserable. I, I took a little bit from Thomas Boston. His, I know this title is going to get your attention. Human nature in its fourfold state. I know that's a real page turner. It actually is. Listen to what he says. The unregenerate, he said, would find fault with heaven. Why? Number one, it's a foreign country to them. Number two, there's nothing there they delight in. Number three, every corner there is filled with things that you like the least. Holiness, true holiness, perfect holiness. Fourth, you wouldn't like the company. Fifth, you wouldn't like the activities. Worship and praise. It already bores you to tears. Sixth, you wouldn't like that it lasts forever. I'm afraid if you don't know Jesus, I'm calling on you. Repent and believe. Well, wait a minute. You said the Spirit has to work. Yes, He does. But my friend, if you're willing to repent and believe, He's worked. How can I tell if He's worked? Are you ready to believe? Uh-huh. He's at work. 
You don't have to have a specific feeling. You don't have to wait for something to happen. My friend, when you see you're a sinner who desperately needs a Savior and Jesus is the Savior and you're willing to turn to Him and trust in Him, that is indicative the Spirit of God is at work. You wouldn't act otherwise. I love this, and I close with this, this quote from Dr. Criswell, without the presence of the Spirit, there's no conviction, no regeneration, no sanctification, no cleansing, no acceptable works. Life is in the quickening, the life-giving power of the Spirit. I'm always amazed that folks say, well, you people don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because your service doesn't look like ours. Let me, let me explain something to you. We believe in the power of the Spirit because we don't even think you get in without the Spirit of God doing the work. That may not show up in bouncing off the walls. Worship. And please, I want to say this graciously as I can. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be enthusiastic in worship. But that's not the test of the work of the Spirit of God. If mere enthusiasm is enough, I've been at a lot of places that were more enthusiastic than any worship service I've been in. Right? You been to a sporting event? Oy vey. I, you want to talk about enthusiasm, notions. Years ago, we took a youth, youth group and some adults to a Cardinals game. When a certain first baseman was chasing a home run record, you remember that? And we were there, and he got called out on strikes, inning one. Let's just say that he took umbrage at the call to such an extent that he got tossed. And the coach got tossed. And suddenly we found ourselves in a stadium of very enthusiastic persons. When they got tossed, everybody in that stadium started tossing things. I wondered if we were going to get out alive. I'm sitting there thinking, great. How many kids and as many adults? So how many hospitalizations is it going to take before we're on the news? Now, thankfully, it calmed down, mostly. Folks, I say that to say Enthusiasm is no indication of the Spirit of God. I'm not saying it doesn't mean the Spirit of God isn't present. I'm simply saying that's not the test. I see today as we draw this to a close, we're about to take the Lord's Supper together again. And I'm thankful we get to do this today. I pray you are as well. But folks, do you understand none of this is meaningful to you without the Spirit of God at work? You won't pursue holiness as a Christian unless the Spirit of God is at work. You will not care about these things with, unless the Spirit of God is at work. When you sit down to read your Bible, friend, there ought to be in your heart, if not on your lips, a prayer. Father, by your Spirit, help me see, help me understand. Open my eyes. I'm a little dense. And my friend, I say to you as a believer in Christ, you ought to rejoice that the Lord found you, rescued you, 
and brought you to life. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice.